0: unshackled of pacific garden mission presents history's greatest sermons where we share the personal history of godly men who brought forth the truth of the gospel in powerful sermons to a world long ago can you imagine sitting at the feet of one of history's greatest preachers and hearing their greatest sermons picture yourself on an old wooden pew in charles spurgeon's london church
1: great faith must have great
0: trials. Or perched in a tree in the fields of a George Whitfield revival.
1: Take care of your life, and the Lord will take care of your
0: death. Or striding down the sawdust trail at a Billy Sunday prayer meeting. Christianity means a lot more than church membership. Whatever the scene, hearing these great sermons from the past will be as fitting to today's Christians as the day they were first preached. And now, here are your hosts, Tim Lundeen and Kelly Robbins.
2: Welcome back to History's Greatest Sermons. Now, this sermon that we're going to listen to is by Charles Spurgeon, and it's only going to be half of the sermon. So there's going to be another uh, episode coming up, and you're going to want to hear that one as well. Just a little uh, disclaimer, a little uh, uh, spoiler alert, I guess. Good enough.
3: And the haves are not haves that you can separate. You need to listen to both. you got to listen to the whole thing. Context is everything, right? It is. Anyway,
2: so spoiler alert, it's Charles Spurgeon this week, which is really cool. And I have to say, it was fun to look up information about him. And again, it's another one of those things where I know the name, and I just don't know a ton about him. Because you grow up thinking, oh, yeah, Charles Spurgeon. It's a name. It's, it's a name. And mm-hmm. then you look it up. According to Spurgeon.org, listen to this. 57 years of preaching, often preaching four to ten times a week, lectured, edited a monthly magazine, wrote 150 books, mm. pastored the largest Protestant megachurch at the time, 6,000 members. So- uh, allegedly, he knew everyone's name. Wow! Uh, directed oh, yeah. a theological college, ran an orphanage, oversaw sixty-six Christian charities. Okay. And that makes me feel like I've done absolutely nothing. Like you woke with up yesterday. Life. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like all this stuff, this guy's done. Yeah. So, but before all that, before he started Pastors College, before preaching to his largest crowd ever—twenty-four thousand people at that time—before building his megachurch, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He was still preaching at New Park Street Chapel in Southwark.
3: Wasn't he 15 or so when he first started preaching? And soon after that church came, maybe he was 19, something along that
2: line. Yeah, he was very young when they approached him saying, we'd like you to be our senior pastor. So this was at that time. Now, Mm -hmm. this sermon is called Law and Grace. It was delivered on Sabbath morning, August 26, 1855. Let's listen to Charles Spurgeon.
1: Moreover, the law entered, that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Romans chapter 5 verse 20. There is no point upon which men make greater mistakes than upon the relationship that exists between the law and the gospel. Some men place the law above the gospel. Others place the gospel above the law. Some modify the law and the gospel and preach neither law nor gospel. And others entirely nullify the law by bringing in the gospel. There are many who think that the law is the gospel and teach that men may be saved by good works of benevolence, honesty, righteousness, and sobriety. Such men err. On the other hand, many teach that the gospel is a law, that it has certain commands in it, and by obedience to these commands, men earn their salvation. Such men stray from the truth and do not understand it. A certain class maintain that the law and the gospel are mixed and that men are saved partly by observance of the law and partly by God's grace. These men do not understand the truth and are false teachers. This morning, I will attempt, with God's help, To show you the design of the law and then the aim of the gospel. The coming of the law is explained by its goal. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Then comes the mission of the gospel. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I will consider this text in two senses this morning. First, as it concerns the world at large and the entrance of the law into it, and then afterward, in regard to the heart of the convinced sinner and the entrance of the law into the conscience. God's purpose in sending the law into the world was that the offense might abound. But then comes the gospel, for where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. First then, in reference to the entire world, God sent the law into the world that the offense might abound. There was sin in the world long before God sent the law. God gave his law, so that the offence would appear to be an offence and so the offence might abound exceedingly more than it could have done without the law's coming. There was sin long before Sinai smoked, long before the mountain trembled beneath the weight of deity and the dread trumpet sound exceedingly loud and long. There had been transgression. And where that law has never been heard, in in heathen countries, where that word has never gone forth, yet there is sin. Because though men cannot sin against the law that they have never seen, yet they can all rebel against the light of nature, against the dictates of conscience, and against that traditional remembrance of right and wrong, which have followed mankind from the place where God created them. All men in every land have consciences, and therefore all men can sin. The unlearned Hottentot, who has never heard anything of God, has enough of the light of nature that he will discern the difference between the things that are outwardly good or bad. Though he foolishly bows down to stumps and stones, he has judgment which, if he used it, would teach him better. If he chose to use his talents, he would know there is a God. The apostle, when speaking of men who have only the light of nature, plainly declared that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Without a divine revelation, men can sin, and sin exceedingly. Conscience, nature, tradition, and reason are each sufficient to condemn them for their violated commandments. The law makes no one a sinner. All men are such since Adam's fall, and and were so in practice before the law's introduction. It entered that the offence might abound. Now, this seems a very terrible thought at first... And many ministers would have shirked this text altogether. But when I find a verse I do not understand, I usually think it is a text I should study. And I try to seek it out before my heavenly Father. Then, when he has opened it to my soul, I consider it my duty to communicate it to you with the holy aid of the Spirit, The law entered that the offence might abound. I will attempt to show you how the law makes offences abound. First of all, the law tells us that many things are sins that we would never have thought to be so if it had not been for the additional light. Even with the light of nature, the, the light of conscience, and the light of tradition, there are some things we would never have believed to be sins if we had not been taught so by the law. Now, what man, by light of conscience, would keep holy the Sabbath day? Suppose he never read the Bible and never heard of it. If he lived in a South Sea island, he might know there was a God, but not by any possibility could he find out that a seventh part of his time should be set apart to that god? We find that there are certain festivals and feasts among the heathens and that they set apart days in honor of their fancied gods, but I would like to know where they could discover that there was a certain seventh day to be set apart to god. To spend the time in his house of prayer, how could they, unless tradition may have handed down the fact of the original consecration of that day by the creating Jehovah? I cannot conceive it possible that either conscience or reason could have taught them such a commandment as this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Nor over If we include the ceremonial ritual in the term law, we can plainly see that many things which in themselves appear quite harmless were constituted sins in it. The eating of animals that do not chew their cud and have a divided hoof, wearing of garments made with mixed fabrics, sitting on a bed polluted by a leper, with a thousand other things, all seem to have no sin in them, but the law made them into sins, and so made offense abound. A fact that you can verify by looking at the working of your own mind is that the law has a tendency to make men rebel. Human nature rises against restraint. I had not known lust, Except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. The depravity of man is excited to rebellion by the proclamation of laws. We are so evil that at once we conceive the desire to commit an act simply because it is forbidden. We all know that children, as a rule, will always desire what they may not have, and if they are forbidden to touch anything, they will either do so at the first opportunity or will long to be able to do so. Any student of human nature can discern the same tendency in humankind at large, should the law then be held responsible for my sin? God forbid. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. The law is holy and just and good. It is not faulty but sin uses it as an opportunity for offence and rebels when it ought to obey. Augustine placed the truth in a clear light when he wrote, The law is not in fault, but our evil and wicked nature, even as a heap of lime is still and quiet until water is poured on it, But then it begins to smoke and burn, not from the fault of the water, but from the nature of the lime, which will not endure it. Thus, you see, this is a second sense in which the entrance of the law causes the offence to abound. Next, the law increases the sinfulness of sin by removing all excuse of ignorance until men know the law their crimes have at least an excuse of partial ignorance but when the code of rules is spread before them their offenses become greater since they are committed against light and knowledge he who sins against conscience will be condemned how much sorrow a punishment will be due to the one who despises the voice of Jehovah, defies his sacred sovereignty, and willfully tramples on his commands. The more light, the greater the guilt. The law gives forth that light and so causes us to become double offenders. O oh, you nations of the earth who have heard the law of Jehovah, your sin, ...is increased and your offence abounds. I think I hear some say, ...how unwise it must have been that a law came to make these things abound. At first sight, does it not seem very harsh... ...that the great author of the world would give us a law that will not justify... ...but instead indirectly cause our condemnation to be greater... Does it not seem to be a thing that a gracious God would not reveal, but would instead withhold? But know that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and understand that there is a gracious purpose even here. Natural men dream that they will obtain favor by a strict performance of duty, but God says... I will show them their folly by proclaiming a law so high that they will despair of attaining it. They think that works will be sufficient to save them. They are wrong, and they will be ruined by their mistake. I will send them a law so terrible in its judgments, so unflinching in its demands, that they cannot possibly obey it. They will be driven to desperation and will come and accept my mercy through Jesus Christ. They cannot be saved by the law, not by the law of nature. As it is, they have sinned against it. I know that, that they have foolishly hoped to keep my law and think that by works of the law they may be justified. I have said, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Therefore, I will write a law, it will be a black and heavy one, a burden that they cannot carry. Then they will turn away and say, I will not attempt to perform it, I will ask my saviour to bear it for me. Imagine an example. Some young men are about to go to sea, where I foresee they will meet with a storm. By the time the natural storm comes on, those young men will be a long way out at sea, and they will be wrecked and ruined before they get back to shore and safety. But suppose you put me in a position where I may cause a tempest before the other arises. What do I do? Why, when they are just at the mouth of the river, I send a storm, putting them in the greatest danger and hurling them ashore so that they are saved, This is what God did. He sent a law that shows humankind the roughness of the journey. The tempest of the law compels them to return to the harbor of free grace and saves them from a most terrible destruction which would otherwise overwhelm them. The law never came to save men. That never was its intention at all. Its purpose in coming was to make the evidence complete that salvation by works is impossible and, consequently, to drive the elect of God to rely wholly on the finished salvation of the gospel. Let us turn to the more pleasing part of the subject, the superabundance of grace. Having grieved over the devastations and the hurtful deeds of sin, it delights our hearts to be assured that grace did much more abound. Grace excels sin in the numbers it brings beneath its sway. It is my firm belief that the number of the saved will be far greater than the damned. It is written that in all things Jesus will have preeminence. Why is this to be left out? Can we think that Satan will have more followers than Jesus? Oh, no. No, for while it is written that the redeemed are a multitude that no man can count, it is not recorded that the lost are beyond numeration. True. We know that the visible elect are always a remnant, but then there are others to be added. Think for a moment of the army of infant souls who are now in heaven. These all fell in Adam, but being all elect, they were all redeemed and regenerated, were privileged to fly from their mother's breasts to glory. Happy lot which we who are spared might well envy. Nor let it be forgotten that the multitudes of converts in the millennial age will very much turn the scale, for then the world will be exceedingly populous, and a thousand years of a reign of grace might easily suffice to overcome the majority accumulated by sin during six thousand years of its tyranny in that peaceful period when all will know him from the least even to the greatest the sons of God will fly like doves to their windows and the Redeemer's family will be exceedingly multiplied though those who have been deluded by superstition and destroyed by lust must be counted by thousands Grace has still the preeminence. Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousand. We admit that the number of the damned will be immense, but we also think that the two states of infancy and millennial glory will furnish so great a reserve of saints that Christ will win the day. The procession of the lost may be long. There must be thousands and thousands and thousands of those who have perished. But a greater procession of the King of Kings will be composed of larger hosts than even these. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The trophies of free grace will be far more than the trophies of sin. Yet again. Grace does much more abound because a time will come when the world will be all full of grace. While there has never been a period in this world's history when it was wholly given to sin, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, there was still a display of grace in the world. In the garden at the close of the day, God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Since that first transgression, there has never been a moment when grace has entirely lost its footing in the earth. God has always had his servants on earth, At times, they have been hidden by fifties in the caves, but they have never been utterly cut off. Grace might be low, the stream might be very shallow, but it has never been wholly dry. There has always been a salt of grace in the world to counteract the power of sin. The clouds have never been so thick that they hid the day. But the time is fast approaching when grace will extend over our poor world and be universal. According to the Bible's testimony, we look for the great day when the dark cloud that has swathed this world in darkness shall be removed and it will shine once more like all its sister planets. For many long years, it has been clouded and veiled by sin and corruption, but the last fire will consume its rags and sackcloth. After that fire, the world will shine in righteousness. The huge, molten mass, now slumbering in the bowels of our common mother, will furnish the means of purity, Palaces, crowns, peoples and empires are all to be melted down. And after the present creation has been burned up entirely, God will breathe upon the heated mass and it will cool down again. He will smile on it as he did when he first created it. The rivers will run down the new-made hills and the oceans will float in new-made channels. The world will be again the abode of the righteous forever and ever. This fallen world will be restored to its orbit. That gem that was lost from the scepter of God will be set again. Yes, he will wear it as a seal around his arms. Christ died for the world, and what he died for, he will have. He died for the whole world, and the whole world he will have, when he has purified it, and cleansed it, and fitted it for himself. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, for grace will be universal, and sin never was. One thought more. Has the world lost its possessions by sin? It has gained far more by grace. True, we have been expelled from a garden of delights where peace, love and happiness found a glorious habitation. True, Eden is not ours with its luscious fruits, its blissful bowers and its rivers flowing over sands of gold. But we have through jesus a fairer habitation he has made us sit together in heavenly places the plains of heaven exceed the fields of paradise in the ever new delights that they afford while the tree of life and the river from the throne house the inhabitants of the celestial regions in more than a paradise Did we lose natural life and subject ourselves to painful death by sin? Has grace not revealed an immortality for the sake of which we are too glad to die? Life lost in Adam is more restored in Christ. We admit that our original robes were rent asunder by Adam, but Jesus has clothed us with the divine righteousness, far exceeding in value, even the spotless robes of created innocence. We mourn our low and miserable condition through sin, but we will rejoice at the thought that we are now more secure than before we fell. We are brought into closer alliance with Jesus than our standing could have procured us. Oh, Jesus, you have won us an inheritance more wide than our sin has ever lavished. Your grace has overtopped our sins. Grace does much more abound. That
2: was Charles Spurgeon and his sermon, Law and Grace, portrayed by Brad Armacost. Now remember, that's only part one. So to hear the rest of the sermon, you'll have to tune in next time.
3: And after listening to the sermon, I can't wait. It is very meaty, very good, without being too thick. And that impresses me about Spurgeon. He spent two years rising early and spending deep time in the scriptures. Mm. And that habit made him rely really just on God's word. Yeah. In fact, I think he was criticized for not relying more on extra-biblical knowledge or thinking.
2: Right, because he never went to uh, seminary school.
3: No, but the work of the Spirit was so great in his heart. And if you read him today, anything you pick up, you'll see there's this wonderful marriage of the head and the heart. And that is a humility, an ability to just sit beneath God's Word, ask his Spirit for help, and run with it. Yeah. And anybody can understand that.
2: Yeah. Well, we still need to hear the other part of the sermon, and for that, you'll have to tune in next time. This has been History's Greatest Sermons, an Unshackled production of Pacific Garden Mission, produced and directed by Timothy Gregory. To hear more Unshackled content, you can visit our app, download it for free at any of the major app stores. For more information, visit unshackled.org. Join us next time as we experience another one of History's Greatest Sermons.